Shalom, shalom, friends. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. And we are through Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shemini Yatzeret, Simchat Torah. And we're in the regular days, in the regular days, regular days. The next excitement is Hanukkah. And so now we get to live the regular days, which is great. Very excited. And please accept my apologies. I have to stop this session at 10.50, 10.50, so 10 minutes earlier than usual. But uh, we got a lot to do. So I'm going to jump right in. Shalom, shalom. Thanks for being here. Okay, Soveya, Soveya. This week we look at the 15th malacha, which is dying, dying, with an E in there, dying, Soveya. The overarching concern of this series of malachot, of course, is the working with wool. As the Israelites involved in the construction of the Mishkan dyed material before spinning the wool into thread. This dyeing with various colored solutions was done to produce the coverings for the Mishkan. The malacha of Tzoveya specifically has to do with adding color to the wool, as with makeup or nail polish, painting or coloring. It is not about writing in general, since that is the malacha of kotev, writing. The purpose of that malacha is to create a symbol rather than to enhance symbols with color. Imagine a world with no color, like the one that was experienced when the, when the television was primarily in black and white. We wish to live through a full existence, one that is colorful, vibrant, dynamic. The ability to interact with the full range of color is certainly an aspect of our encounter with the physical world. But spiritual technicolor is a reality as well. Consider this explanation of prayer from Rabbi Soloveitchik. He writes over here in Worship of the Heart. Prayer, which is like a mirror reflecting the image of the person who worships God with heart and soul, is shot through with perplexity, for worship itself is rooted in the human dialectical consciousness. Hence, prayer is not marked by monotonous uniformity. It is multicolored. Prayer as multicolored. It contains contradictory themes, expresses a variety of moods, conflicting experiences, and desires oscillating in opposing directions. Religious experience is a multi-directional multi movement, metaphysically infused. 
Prayer too does not proceed slowly along one straight path, but leaps and cascades from wondrous heights to terrifying depths and back. And so Rabbi Soloveitchik here, the Rav, talks about prayer as um, something that is colorful, multidimensional, one that is full of various emotions, conflicting ideas. If prayer was one thing, just begging or just gratitude or just one emotional experience of longing, then it would be uh, monotone. It would be boring. It would be unsustainable. But what makes it what makes it sustainable is its many colors. Consider the reflection and radiance of light, indeed the colorful visions within prayer experiences, as written about by the Azriel of Garona. The Azriel of Garona was a late 12th century, early 13th century Spanish thinker. And this book here is the Shar HaKavana. Here's what he writes. Whatever one implants firmly in the mind becomes the essential thing. So if you pray and offer a blessing, or if you wish your intentions to be true, imagine you are light. All around you in every corner and on every side is light. Turn to your right and you will find a shining light. To your left, splendor, a radiant light. Between them, up above, the light of the presence. Surrounding that, the light of life. Above it all, a crown of light. Crowning the aspirations of thought. Illuminating the paths of imagination. Spreading the radiance of vision. The light is unfathomable and endless. We are used to, from images like this one, to think of light as being white, whereas there's darkness, which is black. But here the idea of light as multicolored experience, like a kaleidoscope or a prism. Now, one of the fascinating cases where this emerges is from the book, the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, Yechezkel. We learn of a profound prophetic experience, perhaps one of the most profound in all of the uh, Tanakh. Now, I have a lot of ambivalence towards images like this because <laughs> it gives you an image of, um, obviously, there's Christian influence here, and it's the old guy in the sky over there and, um, and all this and that. But it, it, it helps us to kind of get some image of like the radical nature of what we're talking about, but also is kind of confusing and perhaps... Uh, a misportrayal. So anyways, here's what happens in the book of Yechezkel, the first chapter, verses 3 to 7. The word of the Lord was revealed to Ezekiel, the son of Buzi, the priest, in the land of Chaldeans of, by the river Shebar. And the hand of the Lord came upon him there. And I saw, and behold, a tempest was coming from the north, a huge cloud and a flaming fire with a brightness around it. And from its midst, it was like the color of the chashmal, from the midst of the fire. And from its midst was the likeness of four living beings. You see that artwork there? Those, those four living beings kind of combined into one there. That's it, kind of helpful, actually. And this is the appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And each one had four faces. And each one had four wings. And their legs were a straight leg. Um, oh, that's interesting. Which I assume is like an angel. That, right? the, 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 the sources say that angels had no knees. They just kind of fly. They can't walk. <laughs> and the soles of their feet were like a round foot. And they sparkled like the color of burnished copper. So that's actually an interesting piece of art there. Anyways, that is from the book of Ezekiel. Wow. Wow. So a whole field of Kabbalah, a whole field of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, called Merkava mysticism, is developed based entirely on this opening passage in the book of Ezekiel. By the way, if you ever had Ezekiel bread, it's a, it's a nice brown, whole wheat, healthy bread with lots of seeds you can enjoy if you haven't had it before, Ezekiel bread. The prophet's colorful vision is referred to as Ma Merkava, the works of the chariot. 
The Kabbalistic literature based on it overlaps with the Heichalot, the palaces literature describing the throne of God. I took a whole class, a whole semester uh, in grad school at Yeshiva University on Heichalot literature. It, it is a whole field of Kabbalah way before the Lurianic Kabbalah, way before the Zohar, the early, 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 earliest Jewish mysticism based upon Ezekiel, uh, where they flesh out what does the chariot of God look like? What does the throne of God look like? And it's based on these verses over here, a very colorful image, the color of the Chashmal from the burning from the midst of the fire. Now consider this idea found in the Midrash that humans are made from colors. And we're going to see the implications here for refugees, for refugees. It says over here in the Yalkut Shemoni, God gathered the dust of the, of the first human from the four corners of the world, red, black, white, and green. Red is the blood, black is the innards, and green for the body. Why from the four corners of the earth, the Midrash asks? So that if one comes from the east to the west and arrives at the end of his life as he nears departing from the world, it will not be said to him, this land is not the dust of your body. It's of mine. Go back to where you were created. Rather, every place that a person walks, from there she was created, and from there she will return. Wow. So why does the Midrash say many, 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 many centuries ago that people were created of all these different colors? To demonstrate that we all come from all four corners of the earth. No one is really from one place. I'm born in Canada, but my flesh, my innards are not Canadian. That is merely a social status, a, a political category of citizenship. My actual essence um, is universalistic. It comes from planet earth. And thus the Midrash says, no one should say, go back to where you were created. Rather, every place that a person walks, from there she was created, and from there she will return. Uh, someone should not say that. Um, and so that is based upon this uh, idea of us all being created from all the stuff of the universe. This idea reminds us of the diversity of humanity and leads us to contemplate the significance of rights for those people who come from a diversity of backgrounds, especially those who leave their homelands because of oppression in order to find refuge elsewhere. Of course, this is the, this is the history, the story of the Jewish people. All people belong on the earth because we are all made up from the same colors of earth. Following this ethical approach, we consider our responsibilities to the other. And we might contemplate the many colored faces that represent the individuals to whom we hold those responsibilities. In this vein, consider the idea from the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas that although we interact with different people, from different facial features, to truly encounter them means to relate to the personal realities that are merely represented by those varied physical realities. He writes over here in, in, um, in an, actually he doesn't write, he was interviewed. This is from an interview titled, Is It Righteous to Be? He writes, to meet another, one must first welcome a face. This means more than looking at the features of the other face or the color that characterizes the surface of their skin or the iris of his eyes. It is as if in doing so one could perceive, grasp, or know the person. Is not the face first of all expression and appeal preceding that datum of knowledge? 
Is it not the nakedness of the other, destitution and misery beneath the adopted countenance? And so Levinas, to remind us, because we talk about Levinas a lot here, Levinas is... Um, is a post-Holocaust theologian, a survivor himself, a French philosopher, actually perhaps the most successful traditional Jew in terms of secular philosophy. And he is building a new philosophy based on the power of the encounter of the face because he can't believe in a Holocaust someone could look someone in the face and do such things. And so he wants us to move from metaphysics back to the concrete face. And here he's saying, oh, those facial features should have no impact upon um, upon that ultimate dignity of the person because there's a nakedness that goes beyond those facial features of color or of beauty as it is perceived, so to speak. One of my son's favorite books is about a boy with one eye um, and, um, and that boy being accepted at school. And so what does it mean to encounter the face of another? And so here we see the idea of moving beyond the skin color as well. How can color add deep uh, deep and varied facets to human existence, how can it also be a barrier to dignity in terms of being misunderstood or, or entering the realm of stereotype and bias? The Talmud suggests that the, oh, I love this, I love this. The donkey of the Mashiach, the donkey of the Messiah will be like a horse with a thousand colors. Mama, it says this. It says this in the, in the Talmud Sanhedrin, 98a, the Babylonian Talmud. The donkey of Mashiach will have a thousand colors, right? If you ever want to write a book of poetry, call it, call it the thousand-colored donkey, right? That the redemption is coming when we see that donkey, right? Unlike this donkey here, the Zionist donkey up there, which is clearly the northern Israel that looks like the... Uh, uh, the northern hills of Israel, um, uh, that uh, I feel like I've been on that road a million times, uh, that this, uh, where it's just a brown donkey, a thousand-colored donkey. The thousand-colored donkey is a good jumping-off point to understand the theology of Rav Kook and to explore the Tahali Chagoula, a multicolored, multilayered, redemptive journey. That journey will be a polychromatic, multicolored phenomenon involving many different populations and many different conflicting processes. Each person, each group, each movement has a crucial light, a vital element that progresses toward an end targeting the ultimate goal, redemption. Let me flesh that out just a little bit here. Um, the, the, the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, hated Rav Kook for lots of reasons. But one of the main reasons was because he loved the secular, he loved the secular pioneers. He felt that they were a crucial element in the building of Israel and a crucial element in the Geula, in the, in the ultimate redemption. And so he, he showed a lot of respect to secular Israeli pioneers. And so this idea of the thousand-colored donkey in the thought of Rav Kook is the idea that there's no one group. It's not the reform tikkun olam about, uh, flag wavers. It's not the ultra-Orthodox, you know, fervent mitzvah doers. It's not the secular pioneers of Israel. It's not the, you know, fill in the blank of, of, of the type of Jew that you love and you think is the real authentic Jew. He says the a thousand, the thousand colors indicates that it's a, um, it's a multicolored, multifaceted journey towards redemption. And I would add in there as well, um, I've always been bothered by the idea that Geula comes solely through Klal Yisrael, that redemption comes solely through the Jewish people. Clearly, we can say, as Rambam says, that other faith groups um, also help to pave the path to Mashiach. Where does Rambam say it? Maimonides says it. He says that actually 
Christianity and Islam will help to pave the path towards, towards Mashiach. Why? Here's in Maimonidean thought. He says that they will spread the five books of Moses in a way that Jews can't. Why? Jews are small, right? There's, there's, there's over a billion Chinese in the world. There's over a billion Indians in the world. How many Jews? Like 13 million, 15 million? Depends how you count it, right? Tiny, tiny, tiny. We will never be able to spread the word of God. This is part of why he's a Zionist. He thinks that this, a nation state is needed for us to put our message out into the world in a way we can't do in the diaspora. That's part of why he thinks the nation state is necessary. And so he says, but Christianity is massive, over a billion Christians. Islam is massive. How many Muslims are there in the world? Somebody put this in the chat over there. I, I believe it's over a billion also. I just don't want to say that without knowing. I know there's over a billion Christians, but maybe someone can type over there the number of Muslims. Anyways, so they will spread. It's true in the supersessionist theology, which means that, that the Old Testament gets replaced. In Old Testament, we should correct people, is an offensive phrase. It's, offen it's offensive in interfaith dialogue. Okay, if you want to be a Christian and talk with Christians, you can call, call it whatever you want. But if you're in interfaith dialogue, it is offensive to call someone else's book old and, out, and, and outdone. 1.8 billion Muslims. Thank you. Maybe someone composed how many Christians. I assume it's over 2 billion, but let's see. Um, uh, oh, Hindus is over a billion. So it's basically the world is Hindu, Christian, and Muslim, right? Um, 1.9 billion uh, is Muslims. Okay, what am I talking about? Uh, so I, I got interrupted there. Um, what are we talking about? Oh yeah, paving the paving the path. Oh yeah, so it's offensive to call it Old Testament because it implies an interfaith dialogue that ours is the old, outdated one, and they have the new one. Like Christianity says the New Testament, it, uh, you know, uh, out, outweighs the Old Testament. Islam says yes, that's all prophecy, that's all true, but it comes to be outweighed by the Quran. Um, and so, uh, nonetheless, they will spread the word, um, the word of Torah, to the world. Maimonides writes in a way that you're not going to walk into a hotel uh, and open up a drawer and find the Torah. Well, maybe in Israel you might. I don't think you will, but maybe you will in some hotel rooms. Um, but, uh, uh, but if you uh, walk into a hotel, in America at least, and I'm sure many other countries in the world, you will find a Christian Bible in the hotel drawer. So they will, which includes the five books of Moses. The Torah is going to be in the drawer. So they will be successful at spreading it. Okay, 1.2 Hindus, 2.4 Christians, 1.8 Muslims. 1.1 uh, billion atheists. Okay, very interesting. What is that up to? That's uh, that's that's like two, uh, four, four, five, six. So right there, you've got you've got over six billion out of the nine billion Christians, Muslims, Hindus, and atheists, and then tiny little Jews, 13 million. People understand what don't understand why we're obsessed with our survival, um, and why we are so uh, adamant to fight anti-Semitism. Okay, so. Anyways, um, so Rav Cook and, and Redemption, it's multicolored. And here I was just making the case why it's not only the multicolored uh, pluralism of, of, Ju of Judaism, but also um, of, uh, of, of interfaith. This is also the reason why we should be inclusive in the Jewish community. We should not only be inclusive because um, it's an ethical idea. Okay, people who have special needs should be included right? People who are excluded because they're intermarried should be included. People who are Jews of color and feel more excluded should be included, right? People who fill in the blank, okay? So, uh, but also not just because it's ethical, but because to get to redemption, we need all the voices. We need all the different ideas. Okay, half a billion, half a billion Buddhists. I'm surprised it's so small. Well, maybe it's not including the, 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 the people who are part Buddhist, part that. 
atheist Buddhists, uh, Jew boos, I don't know, what do they call it? Christian boo, Christ boo, I don't know what they call them. Uh, a boo Christ, a boo, uh, uh, a booshin. I don't know what they call it. In exploring the mandate to be joyful on the holidays, we see in the Talmud that there were already different customs around wearing colors. This is very interesting, actually. It says over here in Pesachim, in the Talmud of Pesachim, the rabbis taught in Abraita, a person is obligated to gladden their children and members of their household on the festivals, right? You want to make your kids happy on Pesach, right? Don't just give them a three-hour Haggadah, right? Give them some uh, little treats and whatever. As it says, you should, you should rejoice on your festival. What does it mean to gladden, uh, to gladden them? With wine, right? How are men happy? Wine. Rav Yehuda says men with what is suitable for them and women with what is suitable for them. Men, what is suitable for them? Wine. And what does it do? How do you gladden women? Rav Yosef taught in Abraita, uh, with colored garments in Israel, excuse me, with colored garments in Babylonia and in Israel with pressed linen garments. Okay, so, <laughs> so what makes men, men happy? Booze. What makes women happy? Clothes is what, is what they say over there. What makes kids happy? They say little toys. Give them little toys and treats. In another passage, it says men are only happy with meat and women are only happy with jewelry. So what should a man do before, before Sukkot? Buy a bracelet for his wife. And what should the woman do for the man? Make him some beef. Make him some brisket. Okay, the, 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 the sad reality is this is still, still true. Maybe you don't think it's so sad. Maybe that's my judgment. Maybe it's, maybe it's perfectly fine. Okay, fine. Nothing wrong with women liking jewelry, man. Maybe nothing wrong with men enjoying their brisket, right? Um, and, uh, so anyways, this is, uh, but anyways, it, you know, it's funny because a lot of stereotypes are true. A lot of those things you can't say because they're stereotypes. And, and the problem with the stereotype is that you, you enforce it upon someone else, impose it upon someone else unfairly. Uh, that, uh, oftentimes, some of those things are true. Actually, many, many men are most happy with when they're having meat and booze, right? Even though it's, it's not fair, like I, I would be offended. I don't drink aside from a casual glass of wine. I don't, I don't, I don't eat meat. And many women, you know, don't want to be perceived as happy through jewelry and clothes. But for many, it is true. Okay, in any case, what's interesting here is the Israel diaspora divide. In, in, in the diaspora, the women are more happy with colored clothes, it says. But in Israel, they liked pressed linen garments. This is interesting. If you looked at Israeli uh, religious culture today and diaspora religious culture, um, the men in Israel, what do they all wear in the religious Zionist world? They wear khaki pants and a white shirt. All of them. Like everyone in the religious Zionist world, khaki pants, white shirt, and then a colorful kippah. It's called kippah sruga to differentiate themselves from the ultra-Orthodox who wear a black kippah. Right? The, the politics of kippah, where they put it on their head is political, the color of it, the size of it, it's all politics, right? Uh, politics mixed with religion, you know, the way they wear kippah. Also, the way women cover their hair in Israel is political. Do they wear a sheitol? Do they wear a tichol? Do they wear a, what colors do they wear on their head? Red, red has implications. In any case, so uh, in Israel, they wore, the, the women wanted pressed linen garments and in the diaspora, colored garments. It's very interesting. For Jews living in the Babylonian diaspora, the women were more colorful, implied here. Whereas in Israel, they preferred press garments. Likewise, each of us experiences joy differently. And for some, in this case, the women of the diaspora, it was through colorful clothing. For some, clothes can be pure vanity. But for others, they can represent a lofty spiritual ideal of one's religious service. The Rambam writes about the halachic problem of indelibly dyeing one's skin. Now we're going to talk about dyeing one's skin. This is based on the verse, incising a mark. And he writes over this in the laws of idolatry. The laws of idolatry. 
I don't know why this person, I, I assume this is Photoshop, but this person got a tattoo that you should not get tattoos, right? So I guess they just are mocking the Torah or they think it's funny. Um, I don't know what they're doing, but this, unless this is Photoshop, this person got a tattoo. Maybe it's a temporary tattoo. I don't know. Uh, it's not Photoshop. Thank you. Okay. Anyways, here's what Maimonides writes over here. The prohibition of tattooing that is biblically derived, right? Tattooing is a bigger problem because it's from the Torah, not just from the rabbis, is making an incision in one's flesh and filling the incision with eye paint, ink, or any dye that leaves an imprint, right? This is about dyeing, dyeing one's skin. This was the practice of idolaters, right? The, pro the reason this is a problem uh, in its original form is because it's a form of idolatry, right? Jews wouldn't, wouldn't mess with the skin. God gave us skin. We should take care of it. And the idolaters would, um, would dye their skin, who permanently marked their bodies for the sake of their idol worship. They, they served their gods by dyeing their skin. Basically, they understood this to be that they are likened to servants sold to the idol and designated to serve it, right? You're serving the idol by putting, by putting the, the image of that idol into the skin. When one makes an imprint with one of the substances listed above, the punishment of lashes is carried out, whether it's a man or woman, right? Back in the day when they would lash people, tattooing would be something you would be lashed for. If one wrote but did not die, or died but did not write by incising in the flesh, this person is not liable as it's written or incise any marks. That is to say, the prohibition of, of tattooing in the, in the Torah lens is both um, the combination of there being writing and dying, right? The idea of writing names of gods into the skin. So if something was uh, just an image uh, without words, this would be a different category. Okay, more, a lot more to say there, but let's keep going. While there's a general prohibition for a man to dye his hair, to look younger and more attractive, this is based on low yilbash, that a man shouldn't look like a woman. Uh, of course, this gets more complicated when we talk about cross-gender uh, or transgender folks or cross-dressing. Um, uh, and of course, there are some exceptions to that around job security and the like. Um, you know, when there's age discrimination and someone with gray hair decides they're going to dye their hair black, whatever the case is. Um, there's also an idea inherent in the prohibition against idolatry relating to dyeing the face of a human. This is very interesting. I found this in the Tosefta of Bava Metziah. Here's what it says. Excuse me, in the Tosfot of Avodazara. Uh, next, uh, next slide, please. And so is the halakha that a face of a man is forbidden to seal with and forbidden to make. However, those faces of people that are dyed on the sheets with dyes and embroideries are permissible since they do not have a full face, but rather half a face, right? This idea of the prohibition of statues, of statues in Jewish law, um, and the dye that's involved in making an image that pops out, as opposed to a one-dimensional or two-dimensional uh, image, uh, making a three-dimensional image, um, where, where it gets more serious. So what the Tosavot seem to be doing here in their enigmatic style is distinguishing between a paint, painting a two-dimensional figure and fashioning a three-dimensional figure. This distinction in turn appears to perceive some measure of false god worship in an attempt to reproduce fully formed human reality in a full-bodied image, whereas simply depicting an aspect of human nature by using colors is fine. Interesting. Uh, interestingly enough, those in the business of working with wool and with dye were used as an example of how workers have the right to unionize to protect their job and wages. It says in the Tosefta of Baba Metziah, 
the wool workers and the dyers are permitted to say, we will all be partners in any business that comes to the city. Right? So already back many, many centuries ago, there was a form of union that, that, that unions that would emerge to that where wool workers would unite together, dyers would unite together to create partnerships. So to protect their wages together. And they had the right to do that by Jewish law. Some years ago, I found myself yearning for blue tzitzit. Are you familiar with this idea of blue tzitzit? Blue tzitzit strings one Shabbat morning with the Parsha mentioning of Tehillet. When I lived in Israel, I wore Tehillet. And then I stopped. I'll come to why in a moment. I was sad that the dye needs to come from a snail-like creature. The chilazon is understood to be a cuttlefish or, hexafle- or hexaplex, murex, trunculus, found on an Israeli coastal plain near Tel Tel Shikmona. If the dye was traditionally valid, produced without living creatures, I would have been open to wearing it since the ideal is for that blue color to inspire lofty thoughts. So it's interesting. They found the Tehillet on the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, about 100 years ago, that, that creates from that snail, that snail-like creature, they found this, this, uh, bl- this blue color. And so in Israel, many people on their tzitzit or on their talis have the blue strings which is what the Torah actually mentions, because that blue str- those blue strings that comes from that creature should remind us of the sky, which should remind us of the heavens, which should give us more lofty ideals, lofty consciousness. So too, color engenders art, joy, and expression. But color can also be understood as something detrimental. Consider the phrase that we can't allow our past experiences or our biases to color our judgment. Color our judgment. Here, color is meant as one's past skewing, one's image, or the present or the future. Why, why, is, why is it that sad or lonely music is called the blues? <laughs> Consider the idea of a litmus test, where one is tested in a color metaphor to see if they're worthy. But what results do we receive from such tests? In philosophy, there's a concept called verificationism. The argument here is that for a claim to be cognitively meaningful, it needs to be confirmed empirically. For example, an expression of a feeling cannot be categorized as true or false because we would need verified evidence. But unverified statements are to be viewed as problematic. Are feelings truly meaningless? Is theology all meaningless? Is much of the field of ethics meaningless? After all, how can I verify the normative claim that murder is is definitively wrong from an empirical perspective? Further, the principle of verification itself cannot survive the scrutiny of being verified. Life is more colorful than the black and white assessment of true or false. What is meaningful goes beyond what can be verified. Consider faith, love, and other deep internal life experiences. And here we're gonna move towards conclusion. Rather, we can see life through a prism, a kaleidoscope with many vibrant, radiant colors and appreciate the subjective realities that give so much meaning to our lives. And Shabbat in particular, affords us an opportunity to observe those aspects of life, life without needing to add color to the world as we would do if we violated this malacha. There are many colors to spiritual light. Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner taught that there are fundamentally two different kinds of light. One is based on Baruch Hatov HaMetiv, seeing the light in the good of everything. The other is based on Baruch Dayan HaAmet, seeing the light in the darkness. 
One light, again, is on seeing the light of good in everything. One is upon seeing the light in the darkness. Indeed, on Shabbat and beyond, we can learn to see light, see color, and become creators of a dynamic, vibrant, of dynamic, vibrant visions. Thank you. We have uh, 18 minutes together for some, uh, some thoughts and questions. What are the practical implications of um, not dying on Shabbat? I mean, it's not like you're, not too many people are going to take wool, dye it, and spin it. So is there anything practically that we would do during the week that we can't do on Shabbat? Great, great. So, um, right. So again, this is a pluralistic session, so I don't like to get too much into the do's and don'ts um, for that intentional reason, because some of us will understand this series philosophically, and some of us might take a, uh, actually be working to incorporate these malachot into our Shabbat life. And, to a, and again, the purpose of all this is not that it's about Shabbat, but these are the ways we repair the world. By focusing one out of the seven days on these ideas, the other six we can, in a, in a, in a fundamentally opposing way or opposite way, um, repair the world. And so we add more color to the world six days of the week by, by reflecting on color in a different way the other day of the week. Um, and, so, uh, and so here the idea traditionally is you don't add color right? You don't color with crayons or colored pencils. You don't um, use dyes um, when it comes to things like makeups or nail polishes or the like. Um, now, uh, there are lots of exceptions. For example, there's Shabbat makeup. Shabbat makeup is something that is not intended to last for more than 24 hours because dye, dye in, the, in, in halakha means something will last for 24 hours. Um, and so Shabbat makeup is, is intended to be something that will, will fade quickly. Another example of that is that writing, as we'll get to writing another time, is, is intended for writing that lasts more than 24 hours. So in hospitals in Israel, observant doctors will use particular pens where the ink fades after in less than 24 hours. And so after Shabbat, someone will write over that ink again. Um, but the idea there is, is that to, to allow for writing, because it's obviously you got to write, it's saving lives and whatever, but to do it in a way that might minimize the, the idea that it's actually halakhically considered writing. So here, now there is exceptions when it comes to edible, um, edible things. And so things like food coloring, or uh, there's debates around this, putting coffee into water and, and food coloring and things like that. But um, this opportunity to reflect on, on, on coloring, we, we allow our foster kids and, and our young biological kids to color on Shabbat, but our older kids don't color. And that's actually one of the few things that's different for them because most things they can do, they go, they can bike and they can play games and do whatever they wanna do. But they understand when Shabbat ends, this is exciting because you can go color again. And so that's one of the differences here. Someone else? I know we covered a lot of grounds here. Would love to hear more thoughts. <laughs> Questions, thoughts, maybe you're on mute right now. Yes, hi, Rabbi. Okay. So, so I just want to kind of repeat to clarify. So is the idea that by holding back from coloring on Shabbat, we're looking for ways in which we add color without actually putting in color? 
or is it just to sensitize us to the colors of during the week? Yeah, awesome, great, thank you so much. Yeah, so part of it is, is, the, sensitiz- is the sensitizing, just like one who meditates and stops their vision, um, right. then, the, and then meditates on colors or on images, they're, se- they're, they're resensitized towards an experience. But the other is to actually pause from objectively adding color such that we can return to adding color into the world and we can focus on the subjective experience of color, right? As we, as we, refl- as we saw in Rabbi Soloveitchik over there, the notion of prayer as colorful, or as we saw in the Talmud, the notion of messianism as colorful, right? To cultivate an inner subjective experience of multicolored um, subjective experience such that um, the objective world can replace that. We look at the world superficially and all we see is, oh, the color of my clothes, the color on the TV, the color of the flowers. We look out there and we don't actually cultivate internal subjective experience of of color theologically and spiritually. And so we work on doing that internally so that we can return to the objective colors differently. So so we're really, uh, in a beautiful way, enriching the Shabbat rather than depriving the Shabbat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. You know, and here I actually want to say something charitable to the ultra Orthodox who wear black and white. Um, I understand that's not for everyone. It's not for me, but I think that, and, and um, maybe some folks here will, you know, have oppositions to it, whatever the case is, but, but I think there's really, um, I think there's really two ideas here uh, about, about, about Haredi Jews wearing black and white that I think are very beautiful. Um, one is that um, we don't seek our individuality through our clothes, right? Now, again, I'm not critiquing those who do. It's perfectly fine to, to do that. I mean, I, mean I, I wear the same thing every day, but not, you know, um, to make a statement just because I, number one, have no fashion, and number two, don't want to spend money on more clothes, and number three, I just like to look simple. But, um, but other people like to think about clothes, and that's fine. But number one, I think that they, they don't want to express their, express their individuality through clothes, um, and um, that rather there's something deeper. Individuality is subjective. It's internal. It's, it's in prayer. It's in learning, right? And the other idea is, uh, is an issue of modesty. I don't want to draw attention to myself. I don't need to look different from everyone else around me. I want to look, um, you know, I'm, I'm okay looking like everyone else. Now, the critique one could offer is one around conformity, right? What does it mean to create a culture of conformity, which is a problem in the Haredi world around people needing to be the same, pushed to be the same, almost like a robotic type of way. But let's bracket the critique because there's no need for a critique right now. I mean, the beautiful side of it is really uh, the modesty and seeking colors in a deeper way. And so... Um, uh, there's again nothing wrong with having colors in our lives, but here the idea of let's dress really simply. The colorful existence is something much deeper than than the clothes I choose. Uh, okay, there's a question on the side there, AJ. Thank you. Can you talk about why techelis is not widespread in the Orthodox community? If the method has been found, why wouldn't more people accept it? It still seems like a fringe movement within Orthodoxy. Great question. So um, there's a Zionist divide. Um, as you know, the ultra Orthodox are anti-Zionist and the religious Zionists are uber-Zionist. And um, of course, that's an oversimplification because if you're Haredi and you live in Israel, in what way are you not Zionist, right? I mean, you decided to move to the land and live there and be a part of it. Now, it's true there's ways you're not. You say, number one, I reject the secular state. Number two, I won't serve in the army. Number three, I want to receive money for our schools, but we don't want to pay taxes. Okay, so there's ways you're not Zionist. Um, 
but in the sense that the idea of living there and participating in society itself is a Zionist enterprise. In any case, what is fundamental to the ultra-Orthodox world is a rejection of the new, the new. The old is more authentic. The new, in fact, the Chassam Sofer himself says, Chadash um, Asr Min HaTorah. The new is forbidden from the Torah. Right? It's kind of, it's kind of, it becomes a joke because it, it becomes a joke in a lot of circles. But the idea that, that the new is forbidden and, and so anything that's new. And so actually there were, there were early Orthodox synagogues that wouldn't use electricity because electricity was new. And so they used only, uh, they said, look, all the synagogues of old only used, uh, only used lanterns. So there was, there, there was a movement early on to reject electricity in synagogues. Um, and so they said, look, it's true that Tcheles was always what taluses were made from, but we lost the Masora. We lost the tradition. And so we can't just recover it. Uh, here, um, and so uh, the, the religious Zionists say, um, we want to renew the new. Excuse me. We want to yeah, renew the new and uh, renew the old and, and make it new and, and then make it holy. And, uh, and so we found the land. Let's go back to the land and make it, make it bring our monarchy back bring our sovereignty back let's we found the techeles let's bring it back and so the religious zionists are modern in that they want the new to be enhanced they want to build a new army in the likes of the old and and uh, you know and there's a, really a ton to say about this i mean people think orthodox is one thing but religious zionist orthodox and ultra and and haredi orthodox are really very very different phenomena um just like american orthodoxy is very different than uh than Israeli. In fact, you could orthodoxy is a made-up word. It's really orthodoxies. There, there's really no conformities. Even even Hasidic Judaism, there, there are there's such different worlds among different sects of, of Hasidic Jews. So in any case, uh, uh, it, yes, it very much is still a fringe movement. It'd be hard to call them progressives because they're 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 very conservative politically and religiously they're very conservative too. But they're progressive in the sense that um, they 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 look to the future, not the past. They believe in the messianic era is closer and more important than the, than the past worlds. And so they're trying to get everything they can together to move us towards Mashiach, right? Tcheles and, and, and renewing the land and, and doing lots of mitzvot we couldn't do in the past. Okay, someone else. Since you mentioned color, I'm going to take a second just to show you from my balcony. Fabulous autumn color. Sorry? I'm going to show you the autumn colors from my balcony. Thank you. Just for a sec. I just want to share this. Wow. Very nice. Beautiful view. Wow. Very nice. Toronto? Is this Toronto? That's Toronto. Yeah. Um, I overlooked the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Oh, very nice. Which Thank is you. absolutely phenomenal. And since we mentioned color. Yeah. This is the joy of autumn up here. Yeah. Oh, Toronto is beautiful in the autumn. I, as, as you know, I, I lived there till I was five. And uh, I, that's exactly what I remember most is the leaves. Yeah. That's what I missed most when I lived in Israel was autumn. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. We also don't have uh, a, 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 we have a very unique kind of autumn down here in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Someone else, please. Thank you. If there's someone else on any of these topics. Hi, Rabbi. This is Eric. Hi, Eric. Uh, uh, I have a question based on what you talked about colors, and you mentioned about 
uh, on Shabbat. It's desensitized. Uh, I know that on Yom Kippur we wear white. Are there other holidays where color is meant to desensitize in order to, to reflect on the meaning of the holiday? Mm, great question. Great question. Um, Well, there is a custom today, and I'd have to look back to see how old it is. Um, my hunch is it's not so old. Around Rosh Chodesh for women, the new month for women, and um, and I and I have this recollection. I and I hate, I hate to share things when I don't know for sure. Maybe someone here will will know. Around women wearing many colors on Rosh Chodesh. Um, I have to look back at that. Of course, there's lots and lots of white, as you mentioned, Eric. Yom Kippur being the most classic example. And we talked about the Kittel two sessions ago. The Kittel, those who were the Kittel on Yom Kippur, those who were the Kittel at Passover uh, Seder, um, those who were the Kittel on Rosh Hashanah, potentially. Um, and um, are there other colors? Anyone else have any insight on that? I'm drawing a blank on that. It's a, on holidays that you wear particular colors. Um, such an interesting question. Oh, oh, yeah. On um, Tuba'av. On Tuba'av, what color were the dresses of the women? I think they were all white, right? White dresses. They were dancing women wearing white dresses. Anyone recall? Andrea, you're on mute if you're talking. Yeah. Yeah, they, they were white, and also the tradition was that we would we did we, we tried to replicate the ceremony a few years ago at a retreat that the women would bring in exchanged clothing, you know, with other women, uh, their fester goddess. But it was, uh, I think, traditionally it's probably in Tanit uh, to wear white. Yes, yes, and Tuba Av. So if, if you're not familiar, Tuba Av is the Jewish Valentine's Day. I mean, it's obviously silly. It's about as silly as calling Purim Jewish Halloween. You know, I mean, it's like, or Hanukkah Jewish Christmas, and it's like ridiculous, you know, but um, I guess the closest thing we can call Tuba is the, the Jewish day of, of, of romance. It was a time where, where people should try to meet each other, try to get people married. So, uh, okay, we have time for one more question or thought here. So, uh, Eric, I'll, I'll, sorry, Eric, I'll have to research that more. It's a good question. Yes, please, Eileen. I'm going to say that if our world was supposed to be black and white, I think then we would see our world in black and white, and we don't. I think that color is an important component of our happiness and of joy. Not only for the colored leaves, I've got beautiful bougainvillea out my window. So I'm all for color. I am not for black and white. Great. I think, I think we all agree here. Pro-color. Pro-color. Good, good. <laughs> good. Okay, so actually, some of the most ecstatic color you'll see in Israel, if you've been to Sfat, right, in Sfat, the Kabbalistic uh, commitment to colorful art is, is quite profound. So, okay, uh, time for one more. I would just make a comment about dying as a, somebody that's done a lot of dying. It is an, a really incredible transformational process when you put that white, mm. you know, cloth in, particularly if you're working with an indigo vat where it comes out one color and changes to another color. So um, dying was an ancient, ancient um, tradition and they were using natural dyes too. 
uh, at mm -hmm. those times. So um, I just love thinking about that. Beautiful. Love that. Yeah, dying and, uh, and the power of that. And, um, you know, I mean, there's really, uh, um, there, 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 there's really um, a lot more to say about, about dying, adding beauty to the world, and also something more charitable to say than just quoting that one source around tattooing also on how people experience the, the, the beauty and power of that process as well. Um, all the more so when someone is getting, um, well, not all the more so, but in, in addition, when one is engaged in a, in a dying process of, of a reconstructive surgery, for example, uh, typically if there's a uh, reconstructive process that comes with those who have had, who have had a um, uh, breast surgery, you know, the dying, the, the construction and dying that comes with the creation of a new nipple. Um, something like this, which is most certainly, even though it's a form of tattooing involved, most certainly permitted in Jewish law. And so the idea of adding color to the world and to our bodies and to the art of the world is a, is a very powerful idea. And so I give, a, I give everyone the bracha as we conclude today um, at, that um, we should continue to appreciate the colors around us, the profound color experience, and we shouldn't rely on the uh, sensations of the eye. Um, the sensations of the eye to give us a colorful experience, but understand that spiritual life is about internally cultivating a multicolored, multicolored existence, and that sensitizing ourselves to color can also help to en enhance that experience of color. Look forward to seeing everyone next week. Thank you so much for joining. Have a great day. Have a great day.